where we will be considering the entire chapter this morning, 2 Samuel 21, all 22 verses. As you're turning there, I'll remind you that with today's passage, we enter the final section of the Samuel narrative, the final section of, of 1 and 2 Samuel. These closing four chapters, so 21, 22, 23, and 24, these closing four chapters are sometimes called the appendix of 2 Samuel. That's a rather unfortunate description because it implies that these chapters are just tacked on at the end without any importance or real insight. I mean, who, who reads an appendix? But as we'll see over the next several weeks, these final chapters are definitely more than an appendix. The last four chapters of 2 Samuel tie together the themes that have been present throughout the book. So the sovereignty of God, the power of God's providence, the certainty of God's promises, and the centrality of the Davidic king. Those are some of the themes that we've been looking at since, since 1 Samuel. And now the author is going to tie them all together through these, these final four chapters. In, in that sense, this, this final section is certainly not merely tacked on at the end. Sometimes you should not listen too closely to what the experts say when they tell you it's an appendix. Well, maybe it's more than that. They're certainly not just tacked on at the end. In fact, I'll argue this is the ideal way to end the books of First and Second Samuel because it puts our attention where it should always be, on God. And on his work to raise up a great king in David's line. A king who will save his people to the uttermost. It's more than an appendix. Well, that's enough of the, of the big picture for now. Let's turn our attention to today's text, which is 2 Samuel 21. And you can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Now there was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, whom she had borne to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And David brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was again war between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, or Agim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Would you pray with me as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the confidence that we have in the Scriptures that whenever we read the Bible, we are reading the very words of God. We thank You that Your Word is inspired without error. We thank You, Father, that Your Word is trustworthy. We thank You, God, that Your Word is powerful, that it works in the lives of Your people. We thank You, Father, that this is as true of 2 Samuel 21 as it is of Romans chapter 8. And so we ask, God, today that You would work among us through Your Word, that You would give us ears to hear and that we would believe. Father, please keep me from error. Please make the truths of the Bible plain and clear. Make our hearts quick to grasp them. And more than that, Father, make our hearts quick to love what You reveal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel 21 is a chapter of highs and lows. A history of suffering and triumph, both of which occur almost back to back in David's kingdom. On the one hand, God's people suffer under a lengthy famine that plagues the land for three years. We live in a country of abundance, so it's 
somewhat difficult for us to grasp what this is like, but try to imagine going to the grocery store day after day for three years, and there's simply just no bread, no produce for you to buy. It's not that you don't have any money, it's that there's no food. There's just nothing to do. Nothing to eat. That's a bit of what Israel is experiencing in the first 14 verses. It's a famine. It's a low point in David's kingdom. But on the other hand, that low point suddenly swings to the other end of the spectrum. The famine is followed by triumph as God's enemies, the Philistines, repeatedly fall before the people of God. Verses 15 to 22 tell this part of the story, and it's, and it's one victory after another, after another. The Philistines are stubbornly ignorant that they can't win. They just keep attacking. Sometimes they attack at the same place. No one, it seems, can stand against David's army. Not even gigantic thugs armed with new weapons and extra digits. No one can win. David wins. You see, it's a chapter of highs and lows. God's people are famished on the one hand, but then God's enemies are fallen on the other hand. What then ties these things together? Is there a thread that unites the highs and the lows of David's kingdom in chapter 21? Well, yes, there is a thread, and that thread is the hand of God. You may have picked up on it as we read. At the low point of the famine, where is God? Well, He's at work among His people, disciplining disciplining them for their sin. At the high point of victory, where is God? Well, He is at work among His people, saving them from their enemies. Disciplining them and saving them. In other words, friends, none of this is random. None of this is random in chapter 21. And none of it is meaningless. It's all purposeful. In fact, if we were to take away only one thing this morning from this chapter of the Bible, I pray it would be this. In every season, both the highs and the lows, God is doing something in the life of His people. He's doing something. We may not be able to see it all the time. We may not understand it. And we may not even like it. But He's doing something. The Lord's work is always purposeful. So before we go any further, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this truth and I want you to let it sink in, whether it's famine or triumph, whether it's the lows or the highs, all of it flows from the hand of a sovereign God and His work is always purposeful. He doesn't do random. He doesn't do cruel. He does purposeful things for the good of His people. That's the essential message of 2 Samuel 21. In the highs and the lows, God is at work and His work is always purposeful. Now, with that essential theme in view, perhaps it will help us to make sense of some of the specifics. Let's, let's do that now. Let's focus in on some of the specifics of this text. The theme is God's hand working among His people. So I'd like to draw your attention to three specific truths that comprise that theme. The first is found in verses 1 and 2 where we see the mercy of God's judgment. The mercy of God's judgment. As we noted a moment ago, there is a famine in Israel, but verse 1 indicates this famine is unusually severe. Notice the length of time again in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. You can hear the difficulty in the author's description. He's separated from this famine by some time, but it still seems to grip him year after year after year. This famine drags on with no end in sight. They're hungry. God's people are going without. 
Now, of course, you could conclude that this famine is simply the product of poor weather patterns. You could conclude that this is just the result of some badly timed agricultural experiments. Famines just happen, we might say. So there's nothing more to note at this point. But that conclusion would ignore the unique relationship that Israel has with the Lord God. Remember, Israel is God's covenant people here in chapter 21. They belong to Him. And their lives are defined by their covenant with the Lord. In fact, if you look back to the end of Deuteronomy, you would find that in this covenant relationship between God and Israel, God held out to His people both blessings and curses. If the people were faithful, then God would bless them and their land would be blessed. But if the people were unfaithful, then God warned them that things like disease and pestilence and war and famine would come upon them. You see, for Old Testament Israel, there was no meaning to life apart from their relationship with God. You couldn't evaluate anything without putting it in the context of what does it say about God? And that means this crisis in chapter 21 is telling the people of Israel something. It's a famine with a message. And King David understands this, which is why he takes the action that he does in verse 1. Notice again the king's response. And David sought the face of the Lord. Understand, friends, this is an act of humility on David's part. He recognizes something is amiss, something is not right, but instead of evading it or ignoring it or even pretending to have the answer, David humbly casts himself on the Lord God. He's the king, and all he knows to do is pray. That's what he does. He goes to God in prayer, asking the Lord to deliver the people. It's a prayer of humility. And it's also a prayer of faith. By seeking God's face, David is expressing his trust in God's goodness. He believes that God will hear him and answer. So with humility and with faith, David seeks the face of God. And that's when something small but astonishing happens. Notice the end of verse 1. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now before we consider why this is astonishing, we need to clarify what exactly God is talking about. Who are the Gibeonites? and What's the problem that Saul has done to them? The background to this goes all the way back to Joshua chapter 9. And verse 2 here in our passage gives you a little brief summary. The Gibeonites did not belong to the nation of Israel. They were descendants of the Amorites the people who lived in the land before the conquest. But that's where it gets interesting. During Israel's conquest of the land, the Gibeonites had a very clever idea. They tricked Joshua into making a peace treaty with them. Joshua chapter 9. After Israel had crushed Jericho and then crushed Ai, the Gibeonites recognized, we can't, we can't defeat them. So let's dress up in old clothes and let's get some stale bread and let's tell Israel we've come from really far away and we want to make peace. See, they tricked them. And it worked. Joshua and the leaders of Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites. That's the key here. They made a covenant with them, a binding agreement. They promised that they would never kill the Gibeonites. That's where Saul comes in. During Saul's reign, he apparently killed some of the Gibeonites. He tried to kill all of them, but Saul wasn't very good at being a king even when he was trying to do something wrong. He killed some of the Gibeonites, and therefore he violated the covenant. We don't have the specifics 
of when this was, but it fits with Saul's character, doesn't it? It's a rash decision that has unintended consequences. Saul's always rushing ahead, rushing into things. That's what he did here with the Gibeonites. He tried to wipe them out. And his decision has now brought guilt on the entire nation of Israel. Saul sinned, the nation is punished. Why is that? Why is Saul's sin now causing a problem for the entire nation? Well, remember who Saul was at that time. He was the king of Israel. And as the king of Israel, Saul represented the nation. In fact, if you know Israel's history, then you should know this formula. As goes the king, so goes the nation. As goes the king, so goes the nation. When Saul was successful, then it brought blessing to Israel. But when Saul failed, it brought judgment. That's why this one failure now means famine for all of Israel. As goes the king, so goes the nation. But there's another reason Saul's failure has such serious consequences. If you look back to Joshua chapter 9, you'll find that Israel swore to the Gibeonites in the name of the Lord God. They made their covenant in God's name. So that God's glory is attached to Israel's relationship with the Gibeonites. Now consider what this means for Saul's sinful decision. He didn't merely break faith with the Gibeonites. Saul brought dishonor on the name of God. By killing the Gibeonites, it was as if Saul was saying to all of the watching world, God can't be trusted. God's people aren't going to act righteously. We're not going to keep our promises. God's name is not any good. He dishonored the Lord God. And that's why God has brought such a severe consequence on the nation. Because Saul has tarnished the glory of God. Saul and therefore Israel have fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, as difficult as it might be for us to embrace, what Israel deserves is the wrath of God. What Israel deserves is the wrath of God. You see, this famine is only a taste of what the people deserve. But this is where verse 1 becomes astonishing. Israel deserves God's wrath, and yet what do we find God doing here in verse 1? Let's read it again. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Don't overlook that, friends. The holy God of heaven, the Creator of all things, the One who will not give His glory to another, that God speaks to them. And He doesn't speak in judgment. He speaks in revelation. He speaks clearly, revealing to David the reason for their affliction. This should take your breath away. This should stop you in your tracks. David prays and God answers. And He doesn't answer with judgment. He answers with a way to get out of the trouble. Understand, friends, God could have left David in the dark. He could have let the famine keep going forever. He was under no obligation to tell David what the problem was. None. And yet he speaks and he makes their need clear. In the midst of God's judgment, what do we find? We find God's mercy. The holy God does not crush His people without hope and neither does He leave them in the dark. No, God speaks to them. 
He reveals the problem and therefore He calls them to repentance. Oh, what a mercy it is, friends, to have God open your eyes to your need for repentance. To have God clearly tell you, this is where you've gone astray. Come back to me. His discipline is always, often, I should say, His discipline is often painful, but it's never cruel and it's never harsh. It's always full of mercy, full of kindness. And as the Apostle Paul would say centuries later, that kindness is meant to lead us where? To repentance. To repentance. Brothers and sisters, don't begrudge those moments in life when God mercifully reveals where you've fallen short and therefore where you need repentance. Don't begrudge those times. He's not being cruel. In fact, if God were cruel, then He would simply leave you to yourself. The next time you went astray, He would just let you go. That's cruel. That's what God would do if He were cruel, but He's not. God is kind. Even in His discipline, God is kind. And therefore, we shouldn't begrudge those moments when God's fatherly discipline, when that fatherly discipline of God reveals our need for repentance. What are you talking about when you say this fatherly discipline of God? Maybe it's a rebuke from a fellow believer that helps you see what you couldn't see before. I'm blind to my sin. I need you to tell me. Maybe it's one of those moments where someone brings a, a word of correction or a word of rebuke to you. Or maybe it's one of those moments where God, just, just for a short period of time, kind of gives you over to yourself and your sin lashes out in such a way that it's just there in front of everyone and in front of you staring you in the face and you can't hide it and you can't deny it. Have you had one of those lately? I've had one of those. I had more than a few of those on vacation. Where it's just out there and it's staring me in the face. I can't deny it. That's hard, but it's good. It's good because God uses those times to reveal to us our need for repentance. They're not as hard as Israel's famine, praise God, but they're still hard. And they're still good. The kindness of God. That's the lesson of David's kingdom at this point, I believe. That even in God's discipline, there is mercy for His people. So let's not begrudge those moments when God's hand disciplines us enough to reveal where we have gone astray. Those are good moments. As the chapter continues, we soon find that Israel's trouble is far from settled. Yes, the Lord has been merciful to reveal the problem, but still Saul's sin must be dealt with. And it's here that we see the second truth, the necessity of sin's atonement. The necessity of sin's atonement. If there's one thing the people of Israel should know very clearly, it's that sin cannot be ignored. Think about the detailed requirements that God gave in the law of Moses for how to deal with sin. Have you read through Leviticus lately? It's very detailed over which animals to kill and how whenever you have sinned. There are different sacrifices. There are different prescriptions and regulations. There's all of these details that have to be followed if you want to be cleansed before God. Of all the people on the face of the earth at this point in time, Israel should know that sin cannot be ignored. You can't sweep it under the rug. And that certainly proves to be true here in this chapter. Beginning in verse 3, David initiates a conversation with the Gibeonites as to how to deal with Saul's 
sinful covenant breaking. In fact, notice in verse 3 the language that David uses. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Friends, you don't have to read very closely to find the key in that verse. It's the mention of atonement. Saul's sin cannot be ignored. Instead, it must be atoned for. That is, Saul's sin must be paid for so that Israel is cleansed of the guilt. Payment and cleansing. That's what has to happen in order for atonement to occur. Payment and cleansing. At first, the Gibeonites seem hesitant. Notice verse 4. They say that money cannot settle the issue, and neither do they have the authority to put anyone to death. They sound very hesitant. They're not being hesitant. They're telling David what they want. That mention of death is telling David where they have to go. Money can't deal with Saul's sin. Extra land, royal decrees, none of that's going to work. Saul sinfully spilled blood, and therefore blood must be spilled for atonement to be made. And indeed, that's what the Gibeonites make clear in verses 5 and 6. David picks up on their hint and he says, okay, well then tell me what you want me to do. And the horror of atonement becomes unmistakable. The Gibeonites ask for seven of Saul's descendants whom they will then hang before the Lord in Saul's hometown. This is troubling, isn't it? Part of me is wondering, why can't you just pay them off? Why can't money settle this? You're the king. Certainly you can find enough gold to make these people go away. Why not just pay them off? But we have to remember here that Saul's sin was no small thing. He broke a covenant. He broke a covenant. He murdered people Israel had sworn to protect. And in doing so, Saul dishonored the name of the Lord. We mentioned it earlier, but it bears repeating here. Covenants came with blessings and curses. That's how you made a covenant, in fact. You would take an animal and you would cut it in two and you'd put the two halves of the animal right this, by, side by side and then you would walk in between those cut up pieces of the animal. And that was a symbolic way to say, if I break my word, let what we just did to that animal be done to me. My blood, if we break the covenant. Saul broke a covenant. Covenants are serious matters. And when broken, the shedding of blood is necessary to make atonement. But there's more. There's another reason why David can't buy off the Gibeonites. And it comes from the law of Moses. In Numbers 35, God said that murder polluted the land. The shedding of blood made the land unclean. And the only way to be cleansed of that pollution was by atonement in blood. Listen to verse 33, Numbers 35. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Saul is dead. So, the shedding of blood for his sins must now come from his own household. Is that unjust? No. Remember, Saul was the king of Israel. His actions were not merely individual, but national. His sin was not merely personal, but representative. And in such heinous cases, where the name of God was defiled, there was precedent in the law that the punishment would be enforced within the family of the guilty party. Think again of the man Achan in the book of Joshua, who steals the devoted things to destruction 
from the city of Jericho. Achan dies. And do you remember who else dies? Achan's family dies. So is it unjust that Saul's descendants are killed? No. It's not. And so, seven of Saul's descendants are handed over. Verse 9 describes their end. It's hard to watch. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. The necessary atonement has been made. Now, if that were not difficult enough already, the author hits us with even more hardship. It seems that God wants us to just stand still here for for a moment until we feel the full weight of what atonement requires. The reality of death just hangs in this chapter. Notice verse 10, Rizpah. Saul's concubine sets up vigil over the bodies of the slain men. Rizpah lost two sons in this episode, and her grief drives her to protect the bodies from further desecration. Night by night, she wards off the birds and the beasts from their bodies. We don't know how long her vigil lasted, but even one night would have been traumatic. Why does the Bible tell us this? Well, I don't know entirely. But perhaps it's to remind us that death and atonement always go together. After some time, David hears about Rizpah's grief and he responds with a decision to show honor to Saul's household. Look at verses 11 to 14. The point here is clear enough. Out of respect, David decides to properly bury Saul and his descendants. So David goes to Jabesh-Gilead. He gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan. He gets the bodies of these seven men. And David buries them in the tomb of their father. He gives them an honorable burial. It's all been horrific on some level, but it's also been necessary. In fact, notice the last line of verse 14. And after that, that is, after the men had died and been buried, after that, God responded to the plea for the land. You see, atonement has been made, the famine lets up, and the land is cleansed of the guilt associated with Saul's sin. As Christians, how should we respond to this difficult scene? For one, we shouldn't deny that it's hard or horrifying. There's no use in pretending that this really isn't that bad. No, it's pretty gruesome. And that, it seems, is what should mark our response. Atonement is a painful, costly reality. Atonement is a painful, costly reality. We should never lose sight of the fact that whenever atonement has been made, blood has been shed. Whenever God's judgment has been satisfied, someone has taken the punishment and borne it all the way to the grave. You know, we're going to sing here in just a few minutes the wonderful words that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's a declaration of atonement. We're going to sing it here in just a few minutes. It's a declaration of atonement. But if you're like me, I've sung that declaration so many times now that I pretty much just keep on singing. I so easily overlook the fact that the tie binding those two lines together on the cross as Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied. I overlooked the fact that the tie binding those two lines together is the blood of the Son of God. Atonement is not neat. It isn't clean. 
and it isn't easy. In order for the wrath of God to be satisfied against my sin, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to shed His blood. He had to hang there on that shameful cross. Don't miss the echo of hanging and hanging. He had to hang there on that cross, stripped, beaten, mocked, derided, so that the judgment I deserved would be dealt with in His physical body. Why do the Gospel accounts give you so much detail about Jesus' body being beaten and His flesh being torn and the spear going into His side? Why do they emphasize His body? Because atonement requires blood. Atonement requires that somebody hang up there and die. I'm free because Christ died. I'm forgiven because Jesus' blood was poured out. I have atonement because the Son of God stood in the gap between me and the judgment of God, and with unspeakable grace, the Son of God said, I'll take the wrath. I'll shed my blood. I'll hang on this despicable, cursed tree so that my people will be saved. Atonement is not neat. It isn't easy. It isn't clean. Wherever you find atonement, you find death. So that someone else can live. The heart of the Gospel is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for the sins of His people. If you lose that, you don't have the Gospel. And as this chapter and indeed all of the Old Testament reminds us, that atonement was not cheap and it was not easy. It was costly. And the cost was paid in the blood of Jesus Christ. Perhaps this morning you're realizing that the Gospel has grown somewhat stale and dull to your eyes. Perhaps you've grown accustomed to the facts of the Gospel. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, sins forgiven, no condemnation, no hell. You can rattle off those facts, but there's very little wonder, very little appreciation, very little worship, very little gratitude for the cost that makes those facts so gloriously true. Does that sound like your mindset this morning, friends? I know that's true of my response far too often. The monotony of life. I do the same thing every day. The monotony of life just seeps into my walk as a Christian. And the Gospel just begins to look like any other piece of news that I affirm. Right? Hogs lost, Cardinals won, Jesus died. I affirm all those things is true. And there's no wonder. There's no gratitude. There's no marveling. That's true far too often of me. If it's true for you, then perhaps today you would consider the kindness of God to provide such a clear reminder of what atonement really requires, of what it truly means to have divine wrath satisfied against your sin. Does your stomach turn a little bit that these seven men die? Think about the cross. Someone had to die in our place. Someone's blood had to be shed instead of ours in order for atonement to be made. Atonement, payment, and cleansing. Atonement, it's the heart of the Gospel. And the necessity of that payment is what is pictured here in 2 Samuel 21, of all places. The necessity of atonement. Well, we said at the outset that this was a chapter of highs and lows. We've just come through something of the low point, and now we, we're going to end on the, on the high point. Mercy in God's judgment, the necessity of atonement. In verses 15 to 22, 
we see the final truth. The strength of God's salvation. The strength of God's salvation. I mean, technically speaking, verse 15 begins a new scene. Though the events here are familiar. The Philistines return to trouble Israel. They've been absent since chapter 8. The fact that they come back should get your attention. The Philistines come back, but in a rapid-fire series of descriptions, we witness what can only be called Philistine futility. These guys are something else. Time and time again, the Philistines attack, and each time, Israel prevails. Now, there's two aspects to this familiar scene that make it somewhat unique. The first is the presence of four gigantic Philistine warriors. These men are Goliath-like. In fact, one of them is named Goliath. And you can read for 900 years about whether or not this is the same Goliath. It's not the same Goliath. Boggles my mind that people would spend that much, but whatever. One of the guys is named Goliath. Probably a title. uh, Something like, you know, that's what these huge mercenaries are called. The presence of these four gigantic figures defines the scene. Notice the repetition. There are four battles, and in each battle, one of the giants falls. The last Philistine thug is particularly noteworthy as he has six fingers and six toes on each hand and on each foot, respectively. I'm sure that that gave him something to boast about in the camp of the army. He has 24 digits. And still, even with all the extra digits, he proves no match for the Israelite champion. David's nephew kills him. So, That's the first reason why this account is somewhat unique. You have these four gigantic Philistine warriors, but they all die. So maybe they're not that noteworthy. The second reason has to do with David. Notice what happens in verse 15. This is interesting. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. I haven't confirmed this yet, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we read of David getting tired. In the book, time, it seems, is catching up with the mighty King David. He goes out to fight, but this time he gets tired. The hand of David that has so often delivered the people of Israel. The hand of David is getting weak. And that weakness colors the rest of the scene. Verse 17, Abishai steps in and saves David from one of the Philistine thugs. And in response, the men of Israel prohibit David from going to war any longer. David can't go out and fight. You have to stay home. If you die, it's all over, is what they say. So, for the, re- for the rest of the chapter, each Philistine giant is killed not by David, but by one of David's mighty men. You see, the king has grown weak. His hands are weary. His sword is not as quick. His aim is not as true. And therefore, someone else must fight in his place. Now, do you remember what God said back in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel? If you don't, don't worry, because I'm about to tell you. Back in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, the Lord said this, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Well, David's hand is weak in this chapter, and the Philistines are still dying. You see, I'll contend that this series of battles placed at this point in the book is teaching us something about the Lord's salvation. David's hand is too weak to save his people. David's hand is too weak 
to accomplish the salvation that God's people need. But God's hand, God's hand remains strong and able to save. And He can take one of these guys we've never heard of and He can use him to kill the giant. David's strength will soon be dried up completely. In fact, over the next two weeks, we're going to hear David's last words. David's strength is going to be dried up completely and he'll be dead and gone. But for all time, the Lord's strength is sufficient for whatever His people may need. The battle belongs to the Lord, doesn't it, friends? The battle belongs to the Lord. That's what chapter 21 is reminding us. The salvation that God has promised His people will never grow weary, it will never fall short, and it will never come up empty. There are highs and lows in 2 Samuel 21, just as there are highs and lows in the Christian life. But the God who brought victory, despite David's weary hands, is the same God who promises victory today despite our weariness. The application is not that you and I are going to be like David. The application is that God remains the same. God remains the same. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The victory of God's people does not depend on the strength of our leaders. Praise God. And it does not depend on the strength of our resolve. The victory rests on the sovereign strength of the triune God. So whether high or low, whether famine or triumph, God will not fail and His hand will surely save us even when our hands grow weak. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word.